Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not. All right, speaking of ready or not, I told you guys before that uh, the intro, the way it ends, you know, ready or not, probably eight times out of ten, reminds me of the Fugees, and so I sing to myself, ready or not, here I come. You know what I mean. You know the song. Uh, I only bring it up again because um, because the great Eddie, uh, who was on the podcast, shout out to Eddie, uh, sent me a um, little video the other day. He was up in my neck of the woods um, shopping for vinyl, for vintage vinyl, and he found, that's so strange, using the word vintage to, to describe the Fuji's album from 1996, but there you have it. <laughs> that's what he found, and uh, when he got home, he he was playing it on a record player and sent me a video of it. I imagine because I have made that joke on the podcast before that uh, that song's constantly playing in my head right after the intro, uh, so shout out to Eddie. So what's on the agenda today? Well, I'll tell you what, something a little unusual, but not for the reasons you might think. I bought a copy of Aesop's Fables. Why, you might ask, why would you buy a book full of children's stories about animals talking to each other? Well, listen, first of all, have you read Animal Farm? Because uh, that's a children's book where animals talk. And it's all fanciful and everything. But it's a very serious fucking book with very, very important messages, right? And so that's how Aesop's fables are considered to be these short, you know, witty stories about animals, mostly about animals. But they all have some punchline. It's a moral. It's something that we can learn from. The reason I thought it would be worthwhile to read it was because I've been doing all these episodes on Carl Jung and uh, his pupils. And part of that has been reading Ed Edinger's um, psychological uh, breakdown of Greek myths and, and Greek gods and goddesses. And von Franz, um, she did the same thing with fairy tales. So I'm thinking, if you can do a psychological analysis of fairy tales and you can do them of myths, why couldn't we do them with fables? So that was my train of thought, especially when you consider that Aesop goes back even before Socrates. Very early, early Greek writer, and a very popular one. So popular that we know his name today, obviously. Uh, so I thought, there's got to be some gold in there, and maybe I can get some insights. Now, I did get insights. I got lots of insights about the classical Greek world, and what life was like, and what people thought, and some of the stuff they thought about the gods but nothing at all like what von Franz or Edinger show us from fairy tales and myths. 
partly because the story, this fables are very short. I mean, they're like a paragraph is a long fable. There's not a lot to it. Um, pretty short and sweet, but because it's bereft of substance, like mostly, um, there's not a whole lot that I can talk about there. But I did learn some things. I learned that uh, in the classical world in Greece, um, man, it, it it was a bleak world. I mean, so many of those fables are about who who you shouldn't trust and who you shouldn't be friends with. And it was like so many of these things that are saying like, don't even be friends. Don't extend your hand of friendship to somebody who can't protect you, somebody who's not strong, because it's not worth it. Why would you be friends with them when the shit hits the fan? They can't help you because they're not strong. So why waste your time even being friendly with them? There's a lot of that and a lot of other stuff too, but um, it's pretty brutal. I mean, pretty brutal. There's so much in there about like class. Um, the best comparison that I could that I could bring to it is like the caste system in India where you've got these people that are born into certain roles and, and, um, in the community and the society and you're born into a role and you die in that role and there's no moving from one to the other. It's just sort of the way it is. And even if you're a very smart person, if you're a, if you're a, um, you know, in the caste that is a laborer, you, you guess what? You don't get to contribute intellectually, even if you can, because you're a laborer and that's, and that's your fate. And there's a lot of that in Aesop's fables, a lot of that about people who tried to better themselves or people who tried to participate with respected people. And the moral of the fables are, you're just a peasant, so mind your business. You know, you're too big for your britches. There's a lot of that, and um, it's just shocking, you know, when you consider the United States where I live, what it's like. It's not it's not as easy as people think to rise in America, not as easy as it as it once was or maybe has has been historically but it's certainly way easier and way more accepted um than it was in ancient greece it reminds me of uh, the way that the fables talk about poor people and laborers and things like that it reminds me of a scene from the titanic from the from the movie the titanic so i don't know if you guys have seen it but you may remember there's this a woman in it an older woman like a middle-aged woman or, or on the kind of older side of middle age and she's wealthy and she's on the Titanic with all these wealthy people. And back then, people were wealthy because their parents were wealthy. And it's generational wealth. So you had what they called old money. And those people were, were respectable. They were blue bloods. You know, they were of a lineage of good people, um, rewarded for their goodness, um, you know, over the course of generations with wealth. And you got this woman there trying to fit in with all the rich people. But they call her new money. Because she got rich in industry, you know, just recently. And she came from a poor, a poor family and her parents came from a poor family and her grandparents came from a poor family. So even though she's rich, she can afford to be on the Titanic with all the rich people. She can, you know, technically participate in the conversation and be part of the social group. Everyone's talking about her behind her back. You know, she's unsophisticated. She doesn't deserve to be here. That's the kind of shit that you hear in Aesop's fables over and over and over again. So I was a little bit surprised by some of that. Um, so I, I guess I don't want you guys to expect any of the kind of analysis that we typically do when we talk about myths. 
uh, talking about the unconscious and archetypes and symbols and meaning and all that. There's really not a lot of that to go around, but there's some, there's some gold in here and I want to share it with you. So let's talk about Aesop for a minute in the beginning. Aesop is the best known author from Greek antiquity, even better known than Homer who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. There are some people listening who maybe they know the name Homer. Maybe they've heard of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Maybe they saw the, um, uh, you know, a movie. They saw Troy or they saw the, uh, the, they made a mini series out of the Odyssey in the nineties. That was pretty good. Um, so maybe, you know, some of that, but certainly we've heard of Aesop. And even if we don't know the name Aesop, when we start talking about some of his fables, you're going to be like, Oh yeah, I do know Aesop. I know that story. I've known it since I was a kid. So we'll get there. But what do we know about Aesop? Because he goes way back into, into, you know, deep classical history. Not a lot of, uh, good history records were available. So it seems like Aesop was originally from Thrace and obviously Thrace doesn't exist anymore, but it's an area of Southeast Greece. Um, but it also includes Bulgaria and parts of Turkey. So that's the area where Aesop most likely was born. But he was known from historical sources to have lived on the island of Samos. So some people believe he was from Samos, uh, but probably not. Uh, he was referred to and this is a Greek word, uh, you know how I am with foreign languages, probably I'll mispronounce this, but I'll do my best. He was referred to as a um, andropodon, andropodon. Now there's two different words for slave in ancient Greece. Andropodon is a word for someone who was not born a slave, but became enslaved. So there was a different word for someone who was born a slave. This word was attributable to somebody who was a free man, who became a slave. So probably somebody that was captured in war, something like that. That's the position Aesop was in. He's writing these great fables, contributing to Western culture in you know, unknown ways. And he was a slave. So there's that. When did he live? Uh, we think he was born in the early 6th century BC. He died around 654. Um, in contrast, um, the Socrates and Plato era, I think, is closer to the 400s, if I remember correctly. So Aesop goes back, you know, well before Socrates. And he probably worked as like a secretary of some kind for his masters. And there's evidence that he traveled um, either before his enslavement or during his enslavement. It's not quite clear. What is clear is that he uses myths. Um, he references, let's say, other fables. Um, that come from different parts of the world. Uh, for instance, so there's a handful of fables that use as one of the main characters the scarab beetle. And the scarab beetle was sacred in Egypt. And so there's some of that there that you can see. Maybe, maybe Aesop traveled as far as Egypt. But there's some other things too, including fables that um, Aesop seems to have borrowed from India. And the explanation for that seems to be that there was communication between, um, obviously, India and Greece, um, certainly from the time of Alexander the Great. Now, that's a little bit after Aesop, but it turns out the group of fables that are attributed to Aesop probably weren't all written by Aesop. There were some that were written later. There were some that were written earlier, but they, they were attributed to Aesop because he was so famous and popular for doing this. So, you know, take this with a grain of salt. 
he probably did travel as far afield as Egypt. Now, he had a hard wit. He's a funny guy. And he was, he was able to critique people, like not specific people, but the, the fables talk about rich people. They talk about kings in all kinds of different contexts. Um, so he's definitely critiquing people of power, powerful people, rich people, and kings. Um, but he's able to kind of get away with that because he's talking about animals and plants, anthropomorphizing them and talking about them instead of naming real people. Um, he also critiques society in lots of ways, and he even critiques the gods, right? And he, how is he able to get away with this? You know, I, it, it seems to be, he seems to be doing that because he features animals mainly. And he didn't draw the ire of the authorities. Um, at least it doesn't seem that way. More than half of his 358 fables were jokes and they didn't necessarily have moral lessons attached to them. They were, they were just for amusement, you know? They were clever and witty. There was wordplay involved, but they were funny. Did you know that? More than half of those fables weren't telling your, your children moral lessons. They were just for a laugh. Well, I learned that. I learned that reading Aesop's fables. There is, however, a story about Aesop's death, which may be fiction, but... It claims that he was thrown off the cliffs of Delphi while he was telling the fable of the eagle and the scarab beetle. Um, one of the things that the, I learned about Aesop is that he, he may have been critical of the oracle of Delphi. He may, have, he may have called bullshit on the oracle of Delphi. So the story of him having been thrown off the cliffs of Delphi, again, maybe it's fiction, maybe it's not, but it seems to be related to Aesop's tendency of calling bullshit on the prophetess of, of Delphi, who was supposed to be telling the future. What Aesop's fables do, though, is they, they give us an authentic look inside the minds and culture of ancient Greece. But as I said, they are far from children's stories. The editor of the version, uh, the translation that I'm reading, calls the fables savage, coarse, brutal, lacking in all mercy or compassion. So I, I don't know about you, but was that what you expected? Because that's what we're going to see. So here it goes. So I'm going to open with a joke since I can. Aesop has provided a couple. So here's two examples of comedy uh, courtesy of Aesop. First one is a um, fable. It's called The Wife and Her Drunken Husband. It goes something like this. There was a woman whose husband was a drunkard. To get the better of him and his vice, she devised a plan. She waited for the moment when her husband was so drunk that he was like a corpse. Then she heaved him up over her shoulder, carried him to the cemetery, and dumped him there. When she thought he had slept it off, she went back to the cemetery and knocked on the door of the vault. Who's at the door? The drunkard called out. It's me who comes to bring food for the dead, replied his mournful wife. Don't bring me anything to eat, my good man. Bring me, bring me more to drink. You distress me by talking about food and not drink. Hey-oh! I thought that was brilliant. So, so the drunk man gets put into a... Uh, a vault, so I imagine something like a, um, what do they call those things? Um, 
uh, I'm blanking on it. Uh, you know what I mean, though. Is rather than being buried in the ground, they've got those mausoleums. I guess that's the word. So he, she's dumped into a mausoleum. The door is shut. He's so drunk he doesn't know where he is. She thinks he's sobered up, but he's not. She goes back and knocks on the door, pretends to be somebody um, giving food offerings to the dead at the cemetery, trying to convince this guy that he's dead. And instead of being fearful and getting the joke, um, he says, I don't need anything to eat. Bring me more to drink. So there you go. Number two. Uh, this one is pretty good, too. It's uh, a fable called The Dog and the Hare. And by hare, of course, we, we mean rabbit here. This goes like this. A hunting hound seized a hare and attempted both to bite it and lick its chops at the same time. The hare tired of this and said, Hey, you either bite me or kiss me so that I know how, so that I know whether you are an enemy or a friend. Ah, well, you know what? The, the, the delivery sucked, but the hare says, Hey, you. Either bite me or kiss me so that I can know whether you are an enemy or a friend. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think, I think with, a, with proper comedic timing, that is a joke. That is a joke. All right, so, so introductions aside, uh, let's get into this here. There was a fable that I came across called The Goat and the Donkey. I read the, um, I read the fable and I thought it was, well, you know what? Why don't I read the fable first and I'll tell you what I thought. It goes like this. A man kept a goat and a donkey. The goat became jealous of the donkey because it was so well fed. So she said to him, What with turning the millstone and all the burdens you carry? Your life is just a torment without end. She advised him to fall into a hole in order to get some rest. The donkey followed her advice, fell down, and was badly bruised all over. His master went to get the vet who prescribed an infusion of goat's lung. As a result, the man sacrificed the goat to cure the donkey. All right, so I don't know if that made sense to you here, but the uh, the, go yeah, the, the goat's basically jealous of the, of the donkey, so off to a bad start from a character, character perspective. And, um, and he, he, he basically convinces the, um, convinces the, um, the goat to uh, injure itself um, on the pretext of, of that means he's going to uh, be able to, um, excuse me, the donkey, to the, the donkey would hurt, it, hurt itself and then be able to rest and, and not have to do all the work that he's doing. Really, the goat just wants to see the donkey injured because he's better fed, right? And what happens is the solution to cure um, the donkey is an infusion of goat's lung, Right, so the goat has to be killed and its lung removed to cure the donkey. So that fucking goat got what was coming to him. Right, he was jealous of how well fed the donkey was, so he wanted to get back at the donkey and encouraged him to hurt himself. And as a consequence, he was murdered. His lung removed to cure the donkey. So there's lots of fables like this in Aesop. This was the first one I came across, and I thought, well, I thought that's interesting. You know, because what it's describing is is karma, it's something like karma that we see in in Buddhism and Hinduism. Um, the um, you know the the goat got got what was coming to him essentially, and so there's so much of the fables of Aesop are like that, where when something like that happens, there's just no way to escape fate. You know, you're going to get what's coming to you. There was another one. Um, I didn't write it down the details here, but there was another one that you may you may recognize. 
about somebody that was, um, I think it, maybe it was an animal, was running away um, after committing some crime, trying to get away, and it uh, um, it runs up um, through through the forest or plains or whatever, and there's a lion or a fox or something. There's there's lots of animals that are referenced. Some predator is chasing um, the criminal, so he climbs up a tree to get out of the way of the predator, right? And there's a snake up in the tree, and so he knows he's he's going to get bit by the snake, right? So he he drops out of the tree into the into the water where he's promptly eaten by a crocodile, right? So there's no getting away from it. Karma seems to be something that the Greeks believed in, and I don't know why that surprised me, but it did. I guess it just seems like an Eastern thing, and Greece seems like the heart of the Western tradition. So I wasn't expecting to see so much to do with karma. And I think the uh, there's no doubt the Greeks believed in some form of it. All right, so this brings me to my next section, which I'm going to call Psychology Before It's Time. So you know I have an interest in psychology, depth psychology in particular, um, but I enjoy it. I, I, I enjoy learning about the ways in which we explore the human mind and the theories we have about it and how psychologists and psychotherapists help people and, you know, the placebo effect and all these sorts, all these various things you've heard me talk about before. It just so happens, I picked up a couple of these things from Aesop's fables and they were kind of mind-blowing. So let me, um, let me read a fable to you called The Fox Who Had Never Seen a Lion. It goes like this. There was a fox who had never seen a lion, but one day he happened to meet one of these beasts face to face. On this first occasion, he was so terrified that he felt he would die of fear. He encountered him again, and this time was also frightened, but not so much as the first time. But on the third occasion, when he saw him, he actually plucked up the courage to approach him and began to chat. Okay, that's the fable, guys. There's also another fable very like it. It's called The Camel Scene for the First Time. It's another Aesop fable. It's like a version of this. I don't know what that sounds like to you, but I'll tell you what it sounds like to me. There's something called exposure therapy. It's a psychological technique. It's part of um, cognitive behavioral therapy, if, ever, if you've ever heard of that. And Jordan Peterson talks about it because he worked with a lot of people that had phobias. And he's like, look... I, I, you know, he had a patient that was uh, terrified of elevators, and what he did was he, he, he said, "Look, I want to take you as close as we can to an elevator, and you tell me when you've reached your limit, and we'll stop and we'll turn back. Um, yeah, I'm not going to force you, but I just want to see how far we can get." So every day they would go, uh, you know, to to the. Um, uh, to the elevator, right? They would stand 100 feet from the elevator and the person who was terrified would just stare at the elevator. Then after a couple days, they would get a little closer. And after a couple days, they'd get a little closer. And each time, the person was more and more comfortable getting closer to the elevator. Then they could touch the elevator. They could put their hand on, on the elevator. Then they could open up the door, but not get in. See, then they could get in and then get back out. And little by little, they were able to finally get in, close the door, hit the button, and go up to the next floor. And that's called exposure therapy. It's the idea of desensitizing you to fear, acclimating to it, so that you can actually get over irrational fears just by 
taking voluntary steps closer and closer to in, in confronting whatever that is that you fear. And that's exactly what happens in the fox who had never seen a lion, right? He has to continue to voluntarily stare at the lion and confront the lion in whatever way he possibly can. And eventually the fear goes away and he can walk up and talk to him. So that is from the 6th century BC exposure therapy. Amazing. One more here. It's called The Monkey's Children. The fable is called The Monkey's Children. It goes like this. The monkeys, it is said, give birth to two children at once. Of these two children, the mother cherishes and feeds one with tender care, whereas she despises and neglects the other one. So it happens that by divine fate, the little one that the mother takes care of with love and clasps in her arms is suffocated to death by her, and the one she neglects reaches a perfect maturity. It's a terrible, terrible visual, you know, um, a mother loving her baby to death, you know, hugging it, holding it, clasping it close to her chest, not realizing that the baby can't breathe and dies. It's terrible. But it's interesting, right? Because what's being described here through the, through the monkey is something we're familiar with from psychology, from Freud, actually. It's called the Oedipal Complex. You know, we've talked about the devouring mother, uh, the image or the symbol of the devouring mother. That's what we see here. We just talked about this on the uh, Goddesses of Olympus episode uh, that we did the Young's Greatest Pupils uh, series, so just the last episode. Um, the uh, the devouring mother is described in that episode as, I'm trying to think of uh, the, the quote, it's something like, a mother is supposed to take care um, and feed and nourish an infant who can't take care and feed and nourish themselves. But the moment they can, if the mother continues to nurture and feed them, even though they don't need it, she actually devours them. She, she needs their dependence on her, and she eats it up, right? She, she can't stop because she is doing it for her and not for them. So you've got this image of the devouring mother. And do you think the, the mother monkey is exactly that in this, in this fable? Of course, she smothers her baby to death with love. That's the oldable complex, man. <laughs> so Aesop, Aesop gave us cognitive behavioral therapy and the oldable complex in the 6th century BC. Amazing. That brings me to my next section. I'm going to call this vestigial expressions. If vestigial was a new word for you, let me let me talk about this for a second. I read a I read a book way back when, um, and, and one of these early anthropologists I can't remember who it was now, um, Edward Tyler or somebody, and he uses the word vestigial. That was the first time I ever I've ever seen it. Another place that you might have come across that word is there are some human beings that have what's called a vestigial tail. There's been a couple of movies that, that have shown that, but if you, you basically just have to understand that your tailbone, you know, a human being's tailbone, when we were primates, that's where our the bones of our tail would have extended from. And so every now and then there's a human being born where something doesn't quite go right, um, you know, on the, on the protein front or, or the DNA front or whatever, and they end up having these 
cartilage, and I don't know if they're bones, but they end up having a vestigial tail, something growing out of their tailbone that looks very much like a like a, a great ape, right? Um, it's some part of our DNA, some part of our ancient DNA that we haven't entirely gotten rid of. So some people are born with that. But from the anthropological example, the word vestigial came up to talk about um, ideas or components of culture that we continue to keep, even though we have forgotten, like, why. I'll give you an example. Um, some people know this, but uh, maybe you don't. Women who are being married, they wear a veil. And they have bridesmaids, right? They're all dressed the same. And um, you ever wonder why that is? Because a very long time ago, people believed that in a wedding ceremony, that the forces of evil, the demons, they would look to sabotage the union. They would, they would look to sabotage the sacred union in marriage. So they would look for the bride. And if they could find her, they would curse her, right? So you wear a veil so that the demons don't see your face and they don't know that you're the bride, but that's not good enough. You have to have several other women with you all looking alike so that the demons are even more confused as to which one is the bride. Do you have any idea that's why bridesmaids exist and groomsmen exist? Isn't that funny? It's a vestigial thing we've kept even though we don't fucking know why. Well, there's some of that in Aesop's that I found. <laughs> I want to share it with you. A couple of examples here. First one's called uh, The Fox and the Bunch of Grapes. So let me read this really short. It says, A famished fox, seeking some bunches of grapes hanging from a vine in a tree, wanted to take some, but he couldn't reach them. So he went away saying, Those are unripe. He couldn't get the grapes, so he rationalized to himself, Eh, they're not even ripe. Why do I tell you that? Well, that this fable is the origin of a quite famous expression that we use to this day. Sour grapes, right? What are sour grapes? What does that expression mean? It's to adopt a negative attitude towards something you cannot have. Only because you can't have it, right? You're rationalizing it. You're trying to make yourself, yourself feel better about it. I don't want those grapes anyway. They're sour. Did you know that goes back to ancient Greece and Aesop? Sour grapes? There you go. All right, number two. This one's called The Swan Mistaken for a Goose. And it goes like this. A wealthy man kept a goose and a swan together, not for the same purpose, but the one for his voice and the other destined for the table. When the time came for the goose to meet his fate, it was night, and it became impossible to distinguish the two. But the swan, who had, who had been caught by mistake instead of the goose, began to sing. His voice was recognized, and the song saved his life. So what do I tell you that story? Well, this fable was the origin of another expression that we use, and we know, and I, I don't, had no idea that it goes all the way back to Aesop, swan song, right? Swan song. That expression, which just means something like a last hurrah, for lack of a better word, comes from this Fable from the 6th century BC, the swan mistaken for a goose. So we've got sour grapes, we've got swan song, and I got one more for you. This fable is called the shipwrecked, the shipwrecked man. 
and it goes like this. A rich Athenian was sailing with some other travelers. A violent tempest suddenly arose, and the boat capsized. Then, while the other passengers were trying to save themselves by swimming, the Athenian continually evoked the aid of the goddess Athena and promised offering after offering if only she would save him. One of his shipwrecked companions who swam beside him said, Appeal to Athena by all means, but also move your arms. So what do I tell you that? Well, we have, we have an expression we all know very well, and it goes like this. The gods help those who help themselves, or God helps those who help themselves. Very, very common. We all understand that. And there's multiple myths like this, by the way, in Aesop. The shipwrecked man is one. The ox driver in Heracles is another. Um, but they're exactly like this. Somebody's praying for the gods to save them, but not doing anything to save themselves. And they're criticized for it. I, I just love the way it ends, by the way. Appeal to Athena by all means, but also move your arms. Swim, bitch. Uh, something like that. And that brings me to my next section, which I'm going to call good old-fashioned bigotry. Good old-fashioned bigotry. Okay, here we go. Here we go. There's a fable. It's called the Chariot of Hermes and the Arabs. And it goes like this. One day, Hermes drove across the entire earth a chariot filled with lies, villainy, and fraud. And he distributed a small portion of this cargo in each country he visited. But when he arrived in the country of the Arabs, the chariot suddenly broke down. The Arabs believed he was carrying precious cargo, and so they stole the contents. Hermes was then unable to carry on into the other countries of other people. More than all people, the Arabs are liars and cheats. Indeed, there is not even a word for truth in their language. Well, you see why I call this section good old-fashioned bigotry. So clearly some racism against the Arabs, but it doesn't seem to be exactly race-related. It seems to be related to the, the, the character or the quality of uh, the society. So they were seen for one reason or another as, as thieves, as liars, and as cheats. So you see this myth that carries on that, um, that prejudice, I guess you might say. So it's interesting because um, Hermes was, he was also uh, driving the chariot of the sun, I believe, across the horizon. And here he's, he's driving a chariot across the horizon, but it's filled with lies, villainy, and fraud. So this is what, this is what the ancient Greeks were accusing the Arabs of. And not just any particular Arab, right? The whole bunch of them, all of them. You're all like that. That's why I call it good old-fashioned bigotry. But I'm not done, guys. There's one more here for you. <clears throat> so uh, strap in. This one is called Zeus and Shame. And it's a doozy. <laughs> it goes like this. When Zeus fashioned man, he gave him certain inclinations, but he forgot about shame. Not knowing how to introduce her, he ordered her to enter through the rectum. Shame balked at this and was highly indignant. Finally, she said to Zeus, All right, I'll go in but on the condition that Eros doesn't come in the same way. If he does, I will leave immediately. Ever since then, all homosexuals are without shame. 
I told you it was a zinger, you guys. <sighs> Ever since, all homosexuals are without shame. So that's clearly something that was that was thought about gay people in ancient times, that they didn't have shame. I think that's kind of interesting. It's also interesting to see that uh, even though they were ridiculed to some degree, there isn't, this, there isn't exactly the same kind of prejudice I would have expected. Homosexuality wasn't, in the ancient Greek world, nearly as taboo as, you know, it's been in the Western culture in the last, you know, few hundred years. Um, or many hundreds of years, I guess I should say. But it wasn't, it wasn't as unusual. It was much more socially acceptable. But even, even here, um, you see it. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, I didn't expect it, actually. And it was the only fable that talks about homosexuality so there you have it um just to explain this a little bit so you guys know uh what what's going on here so shame is is sort of anthropomorphized in this example because he zeus calls shame a she so you can imagine it's like a spirit of shame and zeus has created human beings human beings are all done and he's like ah i forgot to put shame in there well how do i get it in and Zeus is like, I'll put it in through the butt, right? Right through the butt. And shame decides that that's okay. She'll, she'll do that. But, but only if Eros doesn't come in that way. Why is that important? Eros is actually Cupid, right? Eros is the son of Aphrodite, the goddess of, uh, or the god of, um, of love, but not just love of, of sort of sexual desire. So that's what he's saying. Sexual desire can't can't come in through the butt, right? Because that's where shame goes. <laughs> and if uh, and if and if love, the spirit of love does, or the sexual desire does come in through the butt, so i.e. homosexuality, they won't have any shame. And so I just thought that was surprising. Sharing that with you guys. There you have it. That brings me to my next section, which I found pretty interesting, actually. Um, you'll, you'll see why. It's kind of a little bit more up my alley. This section I'm going to call Biblical Parallels. So we're looking at things that Aesop um, says in his fables that tie back to something from the Bible. There was actually one other one in here. It was a story that you see in the book of Judges, I think. I didn't, I didn't include it because it wasn't particularly entertaining, but apparently there's a fable in Aesop that has a direct parallel to uh, a biblical story. The ones I'm going to tell you aren't, aren't quite so clear, uh, but I'm going to start with one called The Man and the Seder. So if you guys don't know what a Seder is, maybe you, maybe you can look it up. Um, the image of a Seder is like a man that's partly man, but it's also partly um, goat, I think, if I'm not mistaken. If you guys remember the Disney animated movie Hercules, uh, the guy that trained Hercules was a satyr. So that may give you an image. All right, so it goes like this. It is said that once a man entered into friendship with a satyr, winter had come and the cold weather with it. So the man raised his hands to his mouth and blew upon them. The satyr asked him why did he do that? The man replied that he was warming his hands because of the cold. Then they were served a meal. As the food was very hot, the man took it in small portions, raised them to his mouth, and blew on them. The satyr asked again why he acted thus. The man replied that it cooled his meal because it was too hot. And the satyr replies, Oh well, friend, I give up on your friendship because you blow hot and cold with the same mouth. So that's kind of the punchline, right? You blow hot and cold with the same mouth. But there's a moral to many of these fables. And the moral that goes along with this one says, 
we should shun friendship with those whose character is ambiguous. So you get some idea of what's meant by this. He, right? It's funny, he's blowing on his hands to warm them up, and then he's blowing on the food to cool it down, and the satyr, who's not a human, has no idea why we're doing that, and, and he has is just as baffled at the end as to how he could be cooling and heating with the same breath. So he's like, look, man, we can't be friends, right? We can't be friends. Why? Because you blow hot and cold with the same mouth. Does that remind you of anything? See, it reminds me of Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus says, So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Right? You're, you're neither cold nor hot, so I will spew thee out of thy mouth. And what Jesus meant by that is exactly the same thing that Aesop means in the fable. That you have to take a stance, you have to believe and, and take a side, let's say good or evil, in the context of Revelation. And if you try to play this middle ground, if you try to not take sides, um, then you're dead weight. Especially, especially you know, in the... In the um, the day of judgment, you know, you're you're uh, you're dead weight. So I think there's not only parallel in the language, but in the meaning. And I found that to be interesting because you blow hot and cold with the same mouth. Neither and neither hot nor cold, I will spew thee out of my mouth. It just it just caught my attention. The next one here is called the plowman and the snake who had killed his son. It goes like this. A snake slid up to the child of a plowman and killed it. The plowman, demented with grief, took an axe and went to keep watch near the snake's hole. He was ready to strike it the moment it came out. The snake poked his head out and the laborer hurled his axe, but missed, and instead split a nearby rock in two. Having missed, he was in great fear that the snake would take his revenge on this attack by striking him with his fangs, so he attempted to appease it. But the snake replied, Neither of us can pretend to any good feelings, neither I when I see the gouge you've made in the rock, nor you when you look at the tomb of your child. Oh, man. So why do I tell you this story? A couple of reasons, really. When you... Think about the Bible. I don't know what comes to your mind, but an eye for an eye comes to mind, right? So you've got the snake who kills the sun, so the so the the plowman wants to kill the snake. That's an eye for an eye, and we see that in in the Old Testament. But there's also this vendetta thing in the Bible, and um, you know, there's all these quotes about how God blesses the peacemakers and things like that, because in the ancient world, vendettas were absolutely brutal. If you did something either on purpose or on accident to injure another person, you're going you're gonna to face revenge. And when that revenge happens, it's only going to make things worse f- for the family that was injured, right? They're going to want to get revenge back. And so you have this never-ending, escalating, you know, violent situation. Um, it reminds me of the uh, McCoys and the Hatfields, you know, it's something like that. And so you see lots of... Um, passages in the Bible that that talk about solving that problem by being a peacemaker, and even even Jesus's invitation, right, to turn the other cheek, right. If you injure me on one cheek, I'll offer you the other. That is a solution, right, to this never endless vendetta. 
And I think that's exactly what we see in this in this fable, the plowman and the snake who killed his son. I don't know what you might think about that. Am I stretching a little? Maybe. But that's that's definitely a parallel as far as I'm concerned. All right, we got one more here. It's called the sow and the dog insulting one another. So if anyone doesn't know, a sow is a pig. Okay, so I'm going to use the word sow, but I mean pig. It goes like this. The sow and the dog were outdoing each other with insults. The sow swore by Aphrodite that she would tear the dog to pieces. The dog replied ironically, It's all very well for you to swear by Aphrodite. It's evident she loves you with all her tenderness, she who absolutely refuses to admit to her temple anyone who has tasted from your unpure flesh. Did you pick up on that? The pig is asking for Aphrodite to save to save her or to, uh, uh, you know, to, to end this um, competition between the dog and the sow. And the dog says, Aphrodite doesn't even let people who've eaten pork in her temple. You think she's going to come and, and help you? Well, I have to say, I had no idea that the ancient Greek world believed that pork was unclean the way that you see in the Old Testament. So chapter 7 of Leviticus says exactly that. Pork is unclean. It will make you ritually unclean if you eat it. Did you know that was also the case in ancient Greece? I did not. So you see that other parallel, and it it's interesting. I mean, it makes you wonder why people as diverse and, and far away and geographically and in time as the ancient Greeks and the ancient Hebrews would have the same, exactly the same prohibition. And there are people that have said, well, I mean, it could be one is borrowing from the other, and it could be that their social traditions, their culture, their religious traditions are somehow, um, you know, they're somehow shared, and so this this prohibition against not about against eating pork shows up in both places. But there's a third option which says something like this. I don't know if you've heard this before. That uh, pigs are they're prone to all kinds of um, parasites and diseases, and so eating pork, especially not cooked thoroughly. Um, was a huge danger, right? So you you learn that lesson after you're eating pork and people in your community get sick or die, um, maybe you shouldn't eat it, you know? And so maybe it's something like that that, uh, that causes this thread between the ancient Greek and the ancient Hebrews, but there it is nonetheless. Okay, so this brings me towards the end here. There's a section I'm going to call Fables of the Gods. And the reason I thought this was interesting is because I didn't expect Aesop's fables to include human beings and the gods as much as it did. I thought that they were all stories that were basically animals, anthropomorphic animals talking to each other and, you know, acting like people, but they were, you know, but they weren't. But there's quite a few fables that are about human beings and there's and I mean, clearly, the fables about animals are about human beings too. But there's, there are some that don't hide it. And there are others that talk about the gods. And I thought there might be things we could learn about the ancient Greek religion from these fables that include the gods. So I picked a couple I want to read to you. Uh, you let me know what you think here. The first one is called The Ugly Slave Girl and Aphrodite. It goes like this. A master was in love with an ugly and ill-natured slave girl. With the money that he gave her, she adorned herself with sparkling ornaments 
and rivaled her own mistress. She made continual sacrifices to Aphrodite and beseeched her to make her beautiful. But Aphrodite appeared to the slave in a dream and said, I don't want to make you beautiful because I'm angry that this I'm angry with this man for thinking that you already are. Okay, so you've got the ugly slave girl and the master is in love with her and she wants to become beautiful so she prays to the goddess of beauty, Aphrodite. And Aphrodite says, I could make you beautiful, but I'm not going to because I'm so pissed off this guy actually thinks you are beautiful. She's insulted, right? The goddess of beauty is the spirit of beauty. And she sees this man who who is associating her, the spirit of beauty, with this ugly woman. And she's insulted by that. She's like, the spirit of beauty is not in this woman. You know, how could you possibly say? She's insulted to her core by that. And it tells you something about the Greek gods and goddesses. It tells you that they're very human, you know. They're subject to the same sorts of uh, human foibles as we are, and um, and they should be, you know. From a Jungian perspective, Aphrodite is a archetype. It's a type of personality. It's a type of way of being that mostly women, but certainly femininity in general, um, has as an option, as a path. And the people who take that path, the Aphrodite path... Um, they, they are apt to be jealous, jealous of other women, jealous of beauty, jealous of competition. And, uh, you know, I guess the thing that I find striking about that is that the Christian religion, the Jewish religion, they separate human beings from God more than the ancients did because the Greeks believed the gods were something like human beings. And Jung, of course, says that's because they're describing personalities that are already, that are part of, you know, the human psyche. So yes, of course, they're going to be a lot like human beings. But from a Christian or Jewish perspective, it's a lot more difficult to identify with God. Because God is nothing like you. God is the highest. God is not flawed. God is not subject to sin. He's nothing like you. But in the ancient Greek world, they were exactly like us. And I find that interesting because it, it's one step closer to being able to identify with God. And that's something that the mystic tradition does. It's what I harp on all the time about my own mystic experience and my understanding of religion and you know idealism and panpsychism and those things I talk about on the podcast all the time. That's how I see it. Um, and, and even the stuff on the occult we've done recently. It's about identifying with God, being able to f- see yourself as God or as indistinguishable from God, from the force of creation and life. And it just seems like that's easier to do when the gods are seen like like us in these really kind of intimate, personal ways. It's much more difficult to do if your god is abstract like Yahweh, if you know what I mean. Okay, uh, the next one on the list is called The Men and Zeus. And it goes like this. They say that the animals were made first. That Zeus granted to some strength, to others speed, and to others wings. But that man remained naked and said, Me alone you have left without favor. Zeus replied, You have not taken notice of the gift I've granted you. And yet you have the most, for you have got the power of speech, which is mighty with the gods and with men. 
It is mightier than the powerful, swifter than the fastest. So I don't know what you think about that, but there is this ancient Greek story about human beings being created. It's tied to this story of Prometheus, which is fascinating, by the way. Um, and in the story, the gods are creating human beings, and they're giving, they're doling out all of the things that can be doled out to all the crea created beings. They give strength to the lion, and claws to the tiger, and talons to the eagle, and you know, on and on and on, swiftness to the cheetah. And when they get to human beings, there's nothing left to give to human beings. And this is why Prometheus in the story brings fire, right, to human beings. But in this fable, we don't talk about that. In this fable, we talk about speech. And Zeus says, no, I've given you speech. And there's a connection between speech and fire from the Prometheus story, right? Because the fire that's given by Prometheus to mankind is, is used, right, to give them an advantage or to give them a survival advantage um, over all these other animals that have already been given all the, all the best gifts, it's something that mankind can use to keep themselves safe from predators, right? Fire. We can use it to cook our meat, which is going to help us to survive. We can use it to stay warm, which is going to help us to survive. But we can use it for all kinds of other things, too, like making metal out of ore, like uh, sitting around and telling stories around the campfire, let's say. There's all kinds of other things that come about with fire. And the story of Prometheus makes it clear that what that is is the gift of civilization, so human beings use fire to create all of the accoutrements of civilization. We tell our stories around the campfire. Those are our traditions, our myths, our history. We make weapons and tools from metal we make from ore. We need fire for that. We cook our food. So all of these things that we need to establish civilization, we get with fire from Prometheus. But can't you see that the same could be said of speech? Right? Our ability to communicate with each other, our ability to coordinate with each other, to divide labor, to help each other out, to respond to danger, to respond to need. All of those things allow us to plan, right? To plan to build a city, to manage a community, um, you know, to tell those stories that become our history and become our, our mythology and our religion. All of those things require speech, and so the, so the fable is really a parallel to the story of Prometheus. It's really interesting. It also shows you that these stories were told in different ways, and the people in ancient Greece were seemingly okay with that. You know, the stories they understood to be just stories and not sacred scripture exactly. All right, one more example here is called Zeus in the Jar of Good Things. It's really short. It goes like this. Zeus shut up all good things in a huge wine jar, which he left in the hands of a man. This man was curious and wanted to know what was inside. So he pried open the lid, and all the good things blew away, flying up to the gods. So I don't know what uh, you might think there. But, again, Prometheus comes to mind in a different, in a different way. See, Prometheus' story is tied in deeply to the story of Pandora. So the moment I bring up Pandora, you're like, okay, yeah, Pandora's box, right? Pandora's box was full of all the virtues and all the good things. And Pandora opens that box, and all the good things go. Everything but hope is left, right? So that's the way the story goes. And that's what you see here too, right? You see, curiosity killed the cat. You got the same moral to the Pandora story. 
The jar was opened out of curiosity, and man should have just done his duty, and all, and he, you know, he would have had better outcomes. Instead, he's done himself a grave injury. Right? Curiosity killed the cat. I think what I find interesting here is that this particular version doesn't blame Pandora. Right? Doesn't blame the woman which is something that we see also in the Bible where Eve, of course, steals the knowledge of the fruit uh, of, of or the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, gets Adam to eat that, right? So it's her fault. We all point our fingers at, at woman and say, you know, damn you, it was your fault. And that's a parallel with the story of Pandora, but not with this fable. Zeus in the jar of good things. Who's the enemy here? It's a man, right? It's not a woman. It's a man. So I don't know what that means. I think it shows a little bit of uh, a little bit less of a patriarchal bent to the Greek story. You know, there's less um, incentive to blame woman the way that you see in the Bible. In this case, is just as good whether it's a man who did it or a woman who did it. But either way, it was done, and human beings are to blame for their own misery. That also reminds me of the Bible. So when they, when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Bible, they're responsible for their own misery, right? And, and they're told that they have to go out into the land and toil in the dust of the earth and, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, they did it to themselves. All right, so I've got one more section in the conclusion for you. This last one I, th- I thought was pretty interesting, really. Um, there's three examples here. This category I call ancient origins, And I guess what I want to say here is that there are connections between myths, fairy tales, and fables all over the world and all across time. And um, I'm going to be reading some Grimm's Brothers, and I'll be reading some Hans Christian Andersen's, and I'll see see if there's anything there I can bring bring to you guys. But in Aesop's fables, there's three fables that, well, let me read them to you, and then you see if you pick up on this. The first one is called The Hen That Laid the Golden Eggs. And it goes like this. A man had a beautiful hen who laid golden eggs. Believing that she might have a lump of gold in her belly, the man killed her and found that she was just the same inside as other hens. He had hoped to find riches and was thus deprived of even the little profit that he had. So there's lots of... Uh, fables like this in Aesop's that that are very clearly moral lessons about what you should or shouldn't do, and this is one of them. You know, it's like you got to think ahead, you got to consider the risks, otherwise you might fuck yourself, just like this guy did. Um, but what I found interesting here is the golden eggs. Where do where do we know that from? The hen that lays the golden eggs, because that's familiar to me. Jack and the fucking beanstalk, right? Jack and the beanstalk. When when Jack goes up the beanstalk and confronts the uh, the giant up there and the and all that business, there's a hen there that lays golden eggs that Jack steals from him. Where where, where does that motif come from? Apparently, the sixth century BC Greece, the hen that laid the golden eggs goes back to Greece. Jack and the beanstalk goes back to Greece. I thought that was. Unexpected, man. Did you know that? Maybe I should have. Shame on me. I did not. That brings me to the next one. It's called The Joking Shepherd. I'll read it to you here. A shepherd who led his flock rather far from the village frequently indulged in the following practical joke. He called to the people of the village to help him, 
crying that wolves were attacking his sheep. Two or three times the villagers were alarmed and rushed forth, then returned home having been fooled. But in the end it happened that some wolves really did appear. While they ravaged the flock, the shepherd called out for help to the villagers. But they, imagining that he was hoaxing them as usual, didn't bother with him. So it was that he lost his sheep. Okay, the joking shepherd, guys. The joking shepherd is the boy who cried wolf, is it not? I mean, verbatim, the boy who cried wolf comes from this fable from the 6th century B.C., we still tell that story. I still war- I still use this this exact example with my children. Trying to trying to explain to them why they shouldn't lie, why there's risks involved with lying. Isn't that a fucking amazing? The boy who cried wolf goes back to Aesop. And if that weren't good enough, how about this one? The tortoise and the hare argued over which was the swifter. So they agreed a fixed period of time and a place in parted company. Now the hare, trusting in his natural speed, didn't hurry to set out. He laid down at the side of the road and fell asleep. But the tortoise, well aware of his slowness, didn't stop running. And overtaking the sleeping hare, he arrived first and won the contest. Yeah. Yeah. The tortoise and the goddamn hare is an Aesop fable. Shame on me, I should probably know that. You know what comes to mind when I think of the tortoise and the hare? An old episode of uh, Looney Tunes where Bugs Bunny, is hit, Bugs Bunny plays the role of the hare, you know? Yeah, that's how old the story is. It goes all the way back to ancient Greece. So I don't know how, how much of this is interesting to you, if it's fascinating for you in the same ways it is for me. If you can see why I collected this handful of a dozen or so um, fables to, to read to you today out of the 350 plus that are there, um, these are the ones I thought were interesting, you know. Um, but ultimately, reading the fables wasn't as interesting themselves as learning about the ancient Greek culture from the perspective of the stories that they told each other, the stories that they told their children, um, you know, to to keep them, you know, in line and, and to uh, teach them to, to behave and all that. And how much of that continues to this day that we've preserved it. They were so, so wise and so witty that we preserve those stories and tell them the same way to this day. Just, just amazing. It's the power of myth. It's the power of myth. So I open with a joke. I'm going to close with a joke this time. This is a fable called the hyenas, and it goes like this. They say that hyenas change their sex each year and become males and females alternatively. Now one day, a male hyena attempted an unnatural sex act with a female hyena. The female responded, If you do that, friend, remember that what you do to me will soon be done to you. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? 
Let's find out together in the next episode.